Hey everybody and welcome to the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. My name is Ethan Jago and I am so happy you decided to join me today. Hopefully you've been enjoying the recent podcasts. Uh, We've been talking a lot about biblical manhood, leadership, uh, and in this episode we're taking a quick break uh, from that because uh, leading up um, to next week is the Southern Baptist Convention and there has been a lot of drama, um, not a lot, a ton of drama, uh, a lot of confusion and a lot of Um, arguing back and forth over an issue that has been argued over back and forth, even though it was solidified a very long time ago, regarding the role of women and can women be pastors. Uh, In a few weeks, I'll actually be having an interview with Dale Partridge. Uh, He published a podcast that took a lot of heat called Should Women Teach Theology? Uh, In this podcast, uh, he he has actually three different sections of this. He kind of gives some qualifications and distinctions uh, from a biblical patriarchal view Uh, which I don't hold to that. I see his standpoint on that. Uh, I come from a complementarian view, and so I'm going to be having a discussion with him where uh, already a lot of you have been sending him your questions. Uh, If you want to continue to send in questions leading up to this, uh, you can email me at ethan at ethanjago.com. If you haven't listened to that podcast of his, I would listen to it uh, because we're going to have a good discussion, fruitful discussion. But today's podcast is going to be highlighting um, some key distinctions I wish to make um, leading up to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Southern Baptist Convention is going to be next week in New Orleans, uh, June the 13th through the 14th uh, is when the actual business meeting is going to be done. I'll be heading up there with two of the elders from my church. uh, And there's going to be a lot of important discussions. And one discussion is going to be this resolution that Thomas Skull proposed at the last convention on the resolution on defining the office of bishop, elder, and pastor. Uh, now, Thomas Skoll brought this up, um, and I am going to read this uh, verbatim from his website, founders.org, uh, and you can find this, I'll put it in the show notes, about the resolution that came about. If, you, if you've been completely unfamiliar with what happened last, uh, last convention, um, Rick Warren uh, ordained several women as pastors and has done even more so since, and so there's been talks about disbarring him from the Fellowship of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, because he's violating articles of the Baptist faith and message of the office role of pastor. Warren, I'm oversimplifying this, Warren stated, you know, with everything else that he's done for the world and for Christendom, uh, that this should be an autonomous decision for the local church, not dictated by the executive committee, uh, which I understand where he's coming from. You know, the great thing about Southern Baptists is that each church has autonomy uh, in how they operate, but I do not believe that that autonomy should go so far as to include doctrine, which I believe what we were talking about here is pretty doctrinally based because it's is really focusing on the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. So Warren proposed um, that last year or last convention, Al Mohler actually, I loved what he said. He jumped up there and said, look, if we've got to define uh, stuff that we have already consolidated in the past and revisit these issues, uh, this is going to be a very long journey and road for us as Southern Baptists. And so Thomas Cole posed this resolution on, let's clarify this on the office of Bishop Elder. So here's what uh, he says. I've submitted the following resolution to the 23 Resolutions Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention for adoption at the annual meeting scheduled for June 13th to 14th in New Orleans, Louisiana. My hope is that the committee will recommend it to the convention and give the messengers an opportunity to vote on it. From their beginnings in 1845, Southern Baptists have been clear about the nature, qualifications, and function of the office Bishop Elder Pastor. All three designations are used for the same office. It is in only in recent years that the Southern Baptists have begun to speak on this issue equivocally. 
Though some contemporary Southern Baptists may be unclear on what pastor is, our heritage is free from such uncertainty. May this resolution provide the messengers gathered in New Orleans the opportunity to reaffirm that heritage and speak with clarity on this unambiguous New Testament teaching. So what Tom is referencing here uh, in, in his resolution is defining um, one, the historical process and background of Southern Baptists, uh, which if you didn't know, Southern Baptist denomination, the qualifiers, the Southern Baptist denomination uh, basically split from the Northern Baptist or from, I guess you could say, the general Baptist denomination in 1845. And that was honestly over the issue of slavery and missions. Um, now, with this, uh, Warren has pushed out on his website and in emails and everything else. I mean, he's got a full frontal marketing campaign uh, to advocate to try and garner support for him and essentially trying to uh, what he's really trying to do is if we accept this, we're going to have to redefine the Baptist faith and message of 2000, which is that's fine. Whatever. We've done another one in 1963. But what he's doing is he's making a lot of generalized claims about what the Southern Baptist heritage is and what it is not. And if you're not careful, uh, it sounds very convincing. Um, and, and the issue that I've been seeing here is that a lot of people are just immediately attaching to the hip of an individual who has a very large following and seems very consolidated and concise. Um, and I mean, who hasn't heard of a purpose-driven church or a purpose-driven life, right? So in this, I actually wrote a blog article on this today. I just published it. Today is June the seventh, I published a blog article on my response to Rick Warren's email. He sent this out to thousands of pastors. And then he even boasted about 16,000 pastors responded to him saying, thank you. We've been needing someone that helps protect us from bullying. I'm not even gonna get into that. But here is his his main four issues that he is, I guess you could say pushing back on saying that if we adopt this resolution, if we have to define uh, that a pastor is for a man only, then this is going to have radical implications for the Southern Baptist Convention, which is an overgeneralization. Uh, it, it is completely farce. It's not true. So in his email, there's four major things that he is espousing, if you will, that will, uh, if we define that a pastor can only be a man, which is the correct biblical interpretation, he's saying that this is what will happen to the Southern Baptist Convention as a whole. He says, number one, it will change the basis of our cooperation. Two, it will change the basis of our identity. Three, it will centralize the power in the executive committee and take away autonomy from the churches. And then four, it will turn our confession into a creed, which Baptists have always opposed. Now, you can read my blog article. I'm not going to go over the blog article right now, but you can see that on ethanjago.com. And then you can look for my response to Rick Warren's email. But what I'm going to focus on in this is just a few of the items that he is pushing forward and a lot of the issues, too, that many people use as biblical support to support for women's pastors. Um, I saw uh, several different articles coming out in which there's just poor exegetical work done, uh, poor hermeneutical work done, and just, again, large assumptions uh, that this is something other than what the Bible says. And the biggest issue with the female pastor issue is what role does the authority and sufficiency of scripture play in the life of the Christian? Are things explicitly and implicitly clear? Is there one interpretation? Is it literal? Is it allegorical? Is it metaphorical? These are truly issues because whenever I hear of someone who is in support of a female pastor, my ask that I usually like to pose to them is what is your biblical support to support? And a lot of them will say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, we had Deborah, the prophetess, you know, we had other individuals, Phoebe, you know, and all these other individuals, you know, that were clearly teaching. And then the, the biggest farce that I hear, too, is like, you know, Mary 
ran home and she was the first person that witnessed Jesus's tomb was empty. And so she proclaimed the gospel and was the first preacher of the good news, um, which again, that's an oversimplification. Mary, who discovered that the tomb was empty, came back and she evangelized. She proclaimed the good news that Jesus rose again. Now, there is a distinction between declaring the gospel message and evangelizing, such as, you know, if if you're a guy or a girl and you're sharing the gospel, like that is your command. You are called to share the gospel about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's inherently a difference, though, when that person takes a shift from talking about uh, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ to then they start to deep dive into doctrine. They start to deep dive into theology. And the scripture is very clear on this. Uh, starting from Genesis chapter one, uh, looking at the creation order, then moving into Genesis two, and then moving into Genesis three with the fall, it's clear to see that man was created first, woman was created as the helpmate of man, and in that opens up a whole other can of worms is gender identity of the male and woman um, distinctions, if you will. You know, uh, you got the egalitarian, you got the complementarian. And then obviously you've got the biblical patriarchy, which we'll be discussing in a couple of weeks. But the biggest thing here is what I like to go to is, you know, you have the passage in first Timothy two, chapter 12. Then you also have the passage in first Corinthians, you know, and a lot of people will say too, that, you know, historically women have been oppressed. Uh, you know, the, the Christianity is a very patriarchal misogynistic society, just oppressing women and everything else, which is inherently not true. If that was the case, then why would the gospel writers um, include the eyewitness testimony of women? So there's that. So I'm just going to debunk that, and I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But the, the issue is that what Warren is suggesting, and what Warren and many, many other pastors are supporting and congregant members, is that, no, 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 no. What Paul's saying in 1 Timothy 2.12 specifically is not correct. Like, that's, that, that is not transcultural. That is more you know, localized to the context and the culture of that time, which I can see in passages like in first Corinthians 14, how that could get a little muddy. Uh, if you don't take your time a little bit with the hermeneutical method and understanding the authorial intent and Paul and why he is writing the book of first Corinthians and the book of first Timothy. But if you just take a second and breathe and you look at this and look at the, the context of all of scripture, it makes very clear sense. And honestly, it's just shocking that this is even an issue. So starting off with getting into this, the first thing I want to encourage everybody is understand systematics, understand systematic theology. And if you don't know what systematic theology is, is basically it's understanding going from the very beginning of the Bible and then working your way and progressing your way systematically through the Old and New Testament, because the precepts of God builds up on each other. They continue to build. And so nothing in the Bible contradicts itself. So what God orchestrated back in Genesis 3.15 about his redemptive plan, he's not going to negate later on in the New Testament. You know, a lot of people say, well, no, 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 he did do that with the Ten Commandments. Absolutely not. When Jesus was confronted about that, he said he did not come to abandon or abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he summarized the law with the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you keep those two commandments by default, you will be obeying the Ten Commandments. Otherwise, you'll be put into the category of what's called antinomialism, which anti is against nominal law. So that means you are non-law. You do not believe that the Ten Commandments have any kind of sway or clout over you today, which is inherently not true. 
So what was declared in the Old Testament was not abandoned or abolished in the New Testament. What God had orchestrated as his order creation in the Old Testament did not get rewritten in the New Testament. And so I say that because in the Old Testament, if we if we look in our Bibles, and I'm going to grab my Bible right here because I would be um, aloof to not do this. And it always drove me nuts when people just paraphrase it. But if we if we appeal back to the the Old Testament, looking in Genesis chapter one, sorry, I've got my my bookmarks here for my sermon. I'll be preaching on Sunday. I don't want to lose those. So if we go back to um, Genesis chapter two, all right. And as we look at this, we, we look to see what happens. So look at verse, um, verse seven of Genesis chapter two. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the garden, God, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see man was created first. He put man here. And then he goes to um, verse 16 in Genesis 2, And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, or you will die. And he says in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So immediately we're introduced to the creation or about to be introduced to the creation of woman. And look at what is described here. I will make a helper, a helper, not a co-leader, but a helper. She was created. Woman was created to help man. For what reason? For what reason was he to create woman to help him. Well, continuing on verse 19 and out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So immediately now we see that the task of name and creation, the creatures was given to Adam. God allowed and delegated that authority to Adam. So this is showing that Adam had now a leadership role capability in the order of creation all the way back at the inception of creation to be in charge of naming what the animals are. And he gave all of the animals names and everything else in verse 20. And then in verse 21, Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at the place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib, which he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. So who gave Eve her name? Adam gave Eve her name. So Adam has a hierarchical understanding and positioning in how God created man. God created man in charge of everything, overseeing everything, to be a steward of everything that God had created. Man did not create Eve. Man did not create the animals. Man simply obeyed the commands of Yahweh to name the animals and then named his helper. And then what's interesting is we go down into verse, or excuse me, chapter 3. We see this. Now the serpent had a more, was a more crafty beast than any field, any of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you should not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it. You shall not touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, here's what's interesting about this is that Adam neglected his spiritual and physical role in protecting his wife and protecting his helpmate. And the reason why is we see here that the woman stepped out of her role to make a decision that was not hers to make without consulting her husband first and foremost, which led to the fall. I hope you guys see this logic. Now, granted, you may say, well, it's Adam's fault. Eve was innocent. No, it's both of their fault. Ultimately, Adam is responsible since he is responsible to God to steward and to take care of what God had blessed him with by creating woman. But ultimately, too, though, woman stepped out of her role. Woman, Eve, stepped out, challenged, usurped the authority of her husband, usurped the authority of the one God had ordained to put in and over control of her. And look at what happened. It caused the fall. So I want you to keep that in your mind, okay? I want you to keep this in your mind because when we go now into the New Testament, right, we look in 1 Corinthians, and a lot of this is, for a lot of people, confusing. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're not going to be talking uh, specifically about the head coverings, but what I want you guys to see here is thinking and keeping that very clear in your mind regarding the headship of man, regarding man is the head of the wife, the wife is the helpmate of the husband, it makes very clear what Paul is indicating here and in other passages. Now, let me show you this. 11, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Okay, so here in verse 3. Christ is the head of every man. So Christ, we as men, give an account to Christ. Yes, women do as well, but the way in which God had articulated and ordered creation is it was Christ first, then he created man, then he created Eve. So you see this hierarchical structure, Christ, man, woman. But now look at this. Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. So we see that the man is in charge and responsible for his wife, responsible for the woman and God is the head of Christ. So we see kind of a hierarchical structure here. Now, as we continue on down here, we see this in verse uh, eight, Paul continues this, for man does not, or excuse me, verse seven, for man ought to not have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is glory of man. So yes, are we all made in the image of God? Yes, but man specifically was made in the image and glory of God, and woman was made in the image of God, but for the glory of man. You see that logic there? You can't get around that. This verse is so airtight and clear, there's no other way of interpreting this. Take the head covering thing out of it. Paul's using that as an example. The issue that he is addressing here specifically is trying to address the headship, the headship, the leadership, the structure, the organization, the hierarchical understanding of man and woman. So woman is the glory of man. Verse eight, for man does not originate for woman. So we see order yet again, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Okay, so right there, it is so clear. God created woman to help man. God created woman for the sake of man, not for her own sake. And what happens, though, is the feminist movement that really indoctrinated uh, Southern Baptist culture as a whole, but then also not just Southern Baptist culture, but the, the, the culture as a whole, uh, really started to begin, honestly, right around in the 19th century. And it was just slowly starting to indoctrinate so many different individuals, so many different people that it bled into, sadly, it bled into the church.
it bled into the thinking. And when you, when you think about the Southern Baptist tradition uh, and how everything came out, uh, again, I'm not going to get into too much of the issues here, but historically, the Southern Baptists have been very theologically conservative. Um, Presbyterians, Methodists, all of them have gone in a, in a position, if you will, of going woke. Now, there's obviously still some solid Presbyterian denominations within that uh, that have held to orthodoxy and historic, uh, historic uh, understanding of church interpretation of the Bible. But again, I'm not appealing to that. What I'm appealing to is the understanding of the clear interpretation of God's word using 1 Corinthians 11. Now, okay, we understand this. It's clear. Man is the head of a woman. Woman was made for the sake of man to be a helper for man, not man for woman. Eve stepped out of line in the Old Testament, usurped her husband to try and exercise authority over man. Now, this is going to make sense when we move to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is the biggest one that most people don't want to talk about because they, they just try and discount this as, no, that's cultural. No, that's, no, no, it's not. All right, 1 Timothy 2.12. Actually, I'm going to go from verse 9. You got to understand this whole thing. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, who is an apostolic delegate, planting and delegating and bringing up churches and elders and everything else. 1 Timothy 2, look at verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 15. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing but rather by means of good works as is proper for women professing godliness, a woman must learn in quietness in all submission. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. The why? Here it is, verse 13. For it was Adam who was firm, first formed, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into trespass. But she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. So right here in 1 Timothy 2.12, you got to break this down. If you break this down, you can break this down as 11a, you know, in verse, verse 11 and verse 12. So look at it like 11a is a woman should learn in quietness. 11b, then it's described as submissiveness. 12a, I do not permit a woman to teach or 12b to exercise authority over man or 12c, but she is to remain quietness. Now, the main point that's repeated and the emphasis is in verse 12c, and this is the main point, is they are to remain quiet. Interesting. Well, why you say that's interesting? Well, look at verse 11. A woman must learn in quietness. Verse 12, they are to remain quiet. Well, what does that mean? In all submissiveness, this is basically giving us practical terms of what learning in quietness and submissiveness means. Uh, and this contrasts with should learn. So the woman is to learn and not to teach in the church. If Paul intends, and uh, I'm going to quote here from Bill Mounts in uh, one of his exegetical word-for-word -word commentaries, Mount says this, if Paul intends the two parts of verse 11 to parallel the parts of verse 12, they should learn in quietness, which parallels then, I do not permit a woman to teach. Interesting. And in all submissiveness parallels to exercise authority over a man. If the parallelism is not intended, then all of verse 12 defines what it means to learn quiet submissiveness. The relationship between verse 12a and verse 12b, verse 12a is, but I do not permit a woman to teach. Verse 12b is to exercise authority of man. It will be argued that verse 12b is a general principle, right? So 12b is a general principle, meaning to exercise authority of man is a general principle. And then 12a is the specific application of that principle, which is, I do not permit a woman to teach, end quote from Mounts. So what Mounts is saying here is that the qualifier 
is that she is to learn in quietness. Why? Because I do not, Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to teach and not just teach, but to exercise authority over a man. So this is very clear that when a woman teaches from scripture on items of doctrine, specifically from the pulpit, she is, whether she knows it or not, whether the congregation or whomever else would, or Warren whatever would admit it or not, you are exercising authority over a man. Now, it's not the authority that is uh, innate to that individual, but it's the authority because scripture, what they are proclaiming is authority. Do you not understand that? Like scripture is either authoritative or it's not. It's either the word of God or it's just some helpful jargon written down on a piece of paper. It's clear here. A woman should learn in quietness, in all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach. There's no other way of getting around this because he is using and appealing in verse 13 back into the creation order. So when you look at the context of the entirety of scripture using systematics, good systematics, it's airtight. There's no other way of interpreting this. And some people may say, well, that's just your interpretation. No, it's not. Explain to me another way without you capitulating to that of saying, well, that was a cultural milieu and that only applied at that time. It did not. This is a standardized, prescriptive understanding of what and how this should play out. Now, this is not saying that a woman can't serve in the church. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that the woman cannot teach in the church in a way that exercises authority over a man. Well, what does that mean? That means teaching from God's word, expositionally opening it up. If a woman was to read a passage of scripture and then go into a dialogue about what that means, she is violating this principle. Let me give you an example. If you asked a woman to come up and to give the offertory prayer, or you asked a woman to come up or she's on the worship team and in between sets, she decides to read out of a book of the Bible. Let's just say the Psalms and she reads a Psalm. And then after she reads a Psalm, she goes into like an application of said Bible passage. She has now stepped over the line. She has stepped over and has now begun to do a type of exposition of applying to the gathering of the believers, what this means. Now, I'm not going to sit here and argue about, well, could a woman read a passage of scripture from the worship team? If I'm being overly gracious, I don't think that that would be an issue. But if I am nitpicking and I'm being very careful and cautious, because if you open the crack for this, what's next? I would say potentially she could not. Because if you're reading God's word, it's authoritative regardless of unpacking it or not. Again, it really just comes down to how is it and what do you view scripture as? Is it authoritative? Is it sufficient? Is it inspired? Is it the actual word of God? Is it profitable for teaching for a proof and correction? So that's the biggest issue. I think what we are dealing with here with what Warren is trying to attack with, with what other guys are trying to support Warren and gather this huge thing is, is scripture sufficient? Is scripture authoritative? If it is, then how are you handling and treating it? How are you following the guidelines and the rules? Because that's just the biggest question that I would like for them to ask. Because the other thing too that I want to know is if they're misinterpreting 1 Timothy 2.12, honestly, verse, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, by default, if you do not understand that to take it literal, grammatical, and historical, if you don't take that by default, then you're not interpreting Genesis account of creation in the order of man and woman into account. You're also not interpreting 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14 in the proper way. So if now I've just unpacked 
God's redemptive plan. I've questioned God's redemptive plan. I've questioned the roles of women. I've questioned then the headship of woman and man in Christ and how the church operates. Then also with that, I haven't even brought in first Timothy three about the qualifications for elders overseers, where it says husband of one wife. So based off of just one small section of scripture that if you play fast and loose with it, you get a kind of a domino fall of everything else that accompanies this. If you cannot interpret first Timothy two, nine through 15 in the proper manner and understand that this is me, this means what it says, then by default, you cannot be interpreting the Genesis creation account which then would lead you to be what a theistic evolutionist, maybe an evolutionist old earth. You know what I mean? Like it either says what it says or it does not unless otherwise indicated by the author, which makes it clear that this is metaphorical uh, or poetic. You have to take it literally. And there's key indicators too, especially if you study the apostle Paul, he writes in a very logical, concise manner. Uh, his Greek is very easy to track his Greek and his thought process is continually building up. And the great thing too is all of his epistles, they're referencing these theological motifs intertwining all throughout. So it's like whack-a-mole. If I, if I get rid of first Corinthians 11, then I got to get rid of first Timothy two. Then I got to get rid of first Corinthians 14. Then I got to get rid of all of this other stuff. Ephesians. I got to get rid of all of these other passages. So then what are you left with? You're left with a Bible that you have created in your own image. That means what you want it to mean and how you want it to mean. And you can apply it any which way. Which tells me then too, like what on earth are you getting your instruction from and from whom? You know, I think the biggest issue that people are getting their, their theological education from is these people that they're listening to online that is not really showing and explaining what the word of God means in its integrity. Everything that I'm giving you guys right now, sure, is there a little bit of a bias for me? Or there, is there a little bit of a presupposition I'm loading into this? Yeah, absolutely. But if you actually use your hermeneutic, to check yourself. And then you also keep what's called authorial intent at the forefront of your mind, meaning what did the author mean when he wrote this? What was the intention of the author in writing what he wrote to his original audience that keeps you in check from falling into these fallacious understandings and eisegetical reasoning and just capitulation of the cultural pressure. Because I really think that's what's happening is that if you take a bold stance and outright say, like, think about it this way. Like, if, if you disagree with me, if, if I was to just announce in a public venue that women cannot be pastors outside of the church, I would probably get yelled at. Well, honestly, some churches I probably would, too, because that's offensive. Well, why is that offensive? Because that goes against the whole women's rights movement and the feminist movement of purporting that women are equal with men. Yes, they're equal in creation of like worth, but they're different in function. And so the biggest issue is that most people don't like it when people take these hard stances because you're not used to listening and hearing an objective stance on God's word. Instead, people are like, well, you know what it could mean or, you know, and these, these pastors don't have backbones or spines to support what they want to say with scripture. You know, if, if you're supporting what you want to say with opinion, then you're going to get shot down 16 ways till Sunday. But if you back this up with scripture and you so, show a consolidated um, logical progression of the Bible, then it's very hard to argue against, you know, and I've had these discussions with people and typically what happens is they'll push back a little bit. Then I'll reference another passage of scripture. And then usually where it always goes to is like, well, I just don't like what you're saying. That's great. I understand. There's a lot of stuff that I don't like to, to hear either, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. I can't discount that. I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
you know, you don't have to like everything in what the Bible says, but you must accept and understand everything that scripture says. Does that make sense? It better make sense because like that is the part of Christian living. And if you're getting this wrong, what else are you getting wrong? And I say this because this is a big deal because I remember I was influenced when I really started to get into philosophy. Um, I really started to get into uh, William Lane Craig and I listened to him a lot. And what influenced me was I read Alvin Plantinga's book on like science and religion, where the conflict really lies. And then I realized, oh, there really is no conflict. As long as I can make the Bible adapt to science, the Bible is good. And so what I did was I made the Bible and allowed the Bible to be interpreted through the lens of science. And I adapted the Bible into what science said. So then I became an old earth theistic evolutionist. But it wasn't until I was confronted um, with the word day and the conjunction and in Genesis on the creation account that I realized that this has this only can mean one literal 24 hour solar day. And the only thing that helped me with that was hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is what smacked me across the face and said, you're an idiot, Ethan. This is what this means. It doesn't mean anything else. So if you don't like what I'm saying and you're sitting there stewing in your car and you're like, how dare he go into scripture and study it for yourself. Don't go to like Google. Don't Google like what does so-and-so pastor say? What does so-and-so this say? Don't even like even with me, if you disagree with me, look it up on your own and do a study and apply the principles of hermeneutics to come up with the right sound interpretation. Dude, you do that, you're good because it will speak for itself. And I think that's how we can show a lot of mercy and grace to individuals who may be still wrestling with some of these issues. So all that to say, closing out here, this is going to be a shorter podcast. Everything that you're seeing from Rick Warren and everything, what he says, you know, and it, one of his big things, is he says, truth triumphs over tradition. But what he is going back to is the tradition of the SBCism of saying we've no creeds, but Christ and this and that. Well, you can't know who Christ is unless you have the scriptures and you can't know what truth is outside of the scriptures. And the scriptures are very clear what it says. And the great thing is unity, because the other big thing that he says is, you know, we need to be unified. Uh, we can't achieve unity on doctrine. We're never going to achieve that, but we can achieve unity on mission. There's a difference between unity and uniformity, right? I can be uni unified uh, with other people and agree to disagree, but uniformity does not mean that I need to blend in with what everyone else says. You, you've got, if he can stand up against, uh, you know, what the Bible says, then we need to stand up for what the Bible says. I hope this helps you guys. If it doesn't, I apologize. Um, there's other stuff out there too. Take it or leave it. But I would definitely suggest you go into scripture and look what it look what it says. Look what it has. But like I said, uh, in a couple weeks we got a podcast coming up. Should women be teaching in theology? Um, if you've got questions and you want to write them in, Ethan at EthanJago.com. Otherwise, guys, be in prayer for the Southern Baptist Convention. I'll be traveling there in uh, on Monday to New Orleans. If any of you guys are there, hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, look forward to seeing you guys. If you could, just continue to be in prayer for this, that God's will will be done, and that people will see the light and the truth of what Scripture says, and they will maintain a high standard and view on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Thanks for joining me on the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. Check you guys next time.